Psalm 15. That's where we'll be for this morning. I'll take this time to go ahead and welcome all our visitors and everyone who is here. I was gone on Wednesday. It's, it was a travelsome week, and I am sure happy to be home. I'm sure happy to be with you all and be able to bring a lesson to you all from, from the Word. And so I hope you'll, you'll, learn with this from, or you'll learn with this from me, and I hope you'll be able to take something away from it. Psalm 15 is where we'll be beginning. Thank you. And this is a psalm of David, and we'll start in verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn on your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, and whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out, put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be moved. Have you ever thought to yourself, am I doing everything that I need to be doing to be in the kingdom of God? Have I, have I read through my Bible and understood what I need to be doing so that I can live a life that is worthy of God's calling? I think this is a question that I often ask myself. I'll find myself just in my head, you know, have I done everything I need to be doing? Am I focusing on what my weaknesses are and, and strengthening them so that I can be a better servant of God? In this psalm right here, we have David telling us sort of a list of things we should be doing. And while this list isn't completely inclusive, it's not everything that we should be doing, I think what David does is pull out some of the most important parts of things we should be doing, of attributes we should have for, God, for being God's people. You see, David tells us what it's like and what we need to be doing to become God's unmovable people. And what I mean by this is simple. In verse 1, we see him ask the question, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And then he ends that after giving us all these attributes in verse 5, He who does these things shall never be moved. When I say the unmovable people, I mean we will be the people that dwell with God and nothing can take us from that. Nothing can take us from dwelling and living with God besides our own, our own selves and not doing what he expects us to. And so David is telling us what we need to be doing to become this unmovable people, to become that people on that holy hill. And in this psalm, we examine different characteristics that are crucial to becoming that. Also in this psalm, David uses parallelism, I think that's how you say it, parallelism to group together different ideas as one. So in verse 1, we have three different statements, but it's all one idea. In verse 2, we have different statements, and it's all one idea, and so on and so on. And so understanding this, we can begin to dissect this psalm and, and look through it. So who are the unmovable people? That's the question we have to ask ourselves when we read through these characteristics. And in verse 2, David tells us about the one who walks blamelessly, who does what is right and who speaks truth in his own heart. And simply stating, David is saying the, one, the people who are unmovable are the ones who live by God's standard. The idea of a standard is simple. It's a goal or a level that we want to reach. Oftentimes, athletes have a standard. They look up and, and they want to be the next Tom Brady. They want to be the next Jerry Rice. Because that's the goal. That's the standard that's set before them. For us, 
We have a standard of ourselves. We, we have something in our spiritual walk that we want to live like, that we want to be like. And it's a standard set for us by God. And in order to reach this standard set by God, David gives us three main characteristics that we should be reaching. The very first one is, is walking blamelessly. Walking blamelessly means that we are living righteously in all that we do. It means we are seeing what we need to do, seeing what God has asked us to do, and doing so. It's obeying God and His commandments so that our reputation precedes us that of a godly person, of a spiritual person. Now, being blameless, however, does not mean we cannot be blamed. It doesn't mean we can't be approached and say, you know, so-and-so said this about you. Rather, being blameless means that when accusations or blame does come, that our, then our reputation will precede us. That people will listen and say, well, I don't, I don't really know if that's true because I know that kind of person Zach is. I know what he does. And I, I really don't see any, any strength in your accusation. Being blameless means that our reputation as a, a godly person precedes us. In order to walk blamelessly, we have to know what God expects of us and keep it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we're told we have to be a holy people. That means we have to be separate, used for God's glory instead of our own purposes. In Luke eleven twenty eight, we are told we have to be an obedient people, listening to what God wants and submitting our own will to His. We must be a loving people because God first loved us. And we must walk as God expects us to walk, using Him as a guide. Turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, we can see the idea of walking blamelessly in this passage. Psalm 119 and verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. Walking blamelessly means we identify what God expects of us. We look through the Bible and we see that's what God wants me to do. And so because of that, I'm going to do it. I'm going to keep my word to do so. That's what walking blamelessly means. Not only do we have to walk blamelessly to live up to the standard of God, but we must do what is right. And that's simple enough to say, to say, well, we have to do what is right. Okay, we can move on. But it's a little more in-depth than that. Even, even people who aren't raised in the church, who aren't Christians understand the difference between right and wrong. Because right and wrong is the idea of treating someone else kindly, doing something that is expected, and not, being, not cheating someone out of a deal, not being harmful to one another, not lying to one another. Doing what is right can change depending on our situation. It can change depending on what we find ourselves in. It can look like kindness to us. It can look like us treating others the way we want to be treated. We know that the, the golden rule is in Matthew 7. And if we're treating others the way we want to be treated, then we're not going to be mean to them. We're not going to hurt them or try and harm them because we don't want to be harmed ourselves. We don't want people to be mean to us. And so doing what is right will sometimes look like kindness. In order to do what is right, it'll, it'll take discernment. We'll have to be able to look at the situation we're in and say, you know, I've, I've got to do something different here. 
I've got to be able to treat others kindly, but also keep to the goal that my boss wants me to reach. I've got to be able to help others reach that goal while also maintaining my own standard that I want to live by. We have to discern the proper reaction to different situations. And sometimes doing what is right means that we're admonishing someone. Admonishing is the idea of correcting, fixing something that is wrong. And doing what is right may require us to look at something and say, you know, you're, you maybe shouldn't be doing that. We should, we should try and fix that and get that to where you should be doing something right. It may be awkward. It may be tough. But if we're set to do what is right, we're going to help others to do what is right as well. Doing what is right means we look for the option that is obedient to God and kind and respectful to others as well. Not only does David say we should do what is right, but we should also be speaking truth in our hearts. Speaking truth in our heart is an interesting idea. Different commentaries have a different idea than, than others. And so this one, what I take from it, means we should be looking introspectively at ourselves. If we're speaking truth in our heart, then we're looking at ourselves and saying, I've got a flaw there. I made a mistake at that, one, that, that chance I had. I need to fix that. Speaking truth in our heart means we don't hide our flaws from ourselves. It means we're willing to look at ourselves with an honest perspective instead of raising up the good and blocking out the bad. If we're looking introspectively at ourselves, then we know that we won't, or if we aren't looking introspectively at ourselves, then we know we aren't going to be one of God's people. And I say this Because if we aren't looking introspectively at ourselves, we don't know what we're doing right and what we need to work on. If we aren't looking at who we are and what we've done, then how can we ever fix it? How can we ever grow? How can we ever accept what God wants us to do? If we are looking introspectively at ourselves, we're willing to listen. We're willing to listen to to fix ourselves, to grow ourselves, to become more like God than ourselves. If we're looking introspectively at ourselves, then we will elevate our good and correct the bad that we have. If I know myself, then I can know how best to do something. I know what my strengths are, where where I can help someone best at. If my strength is is being able to build something or, or to run errands for someone, then I will be willing to go and do that. But if my strength is maybe just sitting down and listening to someone, talking to them and just being that ear that they need, well, then I'll do that. Because when we look introspectively at ourselves, when we speak truth into our heart, we can understand the best ways that we can help others grow in God's kingdom. So you see, verse 2 gives us that clear outline of a people, an unmovable people that live up to God's standard. In the second grouping of this psalm, in verse 3, we read, we read, Who does not slander with his tongue, nor does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend? What we see in this is that David says that the unmovable people are a people who discipline their tongue. A people who watch what they say, who, who use their tongue for good and not for bad. Our tongue shouldn't slander someone. To slander is the idea of gossip or badmouth someone. This is the idea of if I went to my brother's high school and started going around to his friends and saying, you know, Chandler is an awful person. Let me tell you what he did to me this weekend. He 
pushed over the clothes that I had nicely folded. He's just a terrible human being. And I start telling people that, and, you know, they may laugh at me because they can probably tell I'm joking, but it may affect their perception of my little brother. And while that may be a silly example, imagine if a coworker was going around to the different people you work with and saying, Zach's just a really lazy worker. He doesn't get his projects done on time. He, he really doesn't listen to what I have to say when I want him to do something. I don't think you should use him for your next promotion. I don't think you should use him for, for that project you want to do. And they start telling people things that may not be true about us. They start saying, you know, he's lazy. He doesn't get his work done. Don't use him for that project. And it affects different opportunities we have when we work. Slander can destroy someone's reputation. It can tear down what someone has worked so hard to build up. And it's hard to fix after that. Slander starts us down a road of damaging someone else because we have a certain perception about them that may or may not be true. So David tells us that our tongues should not be used to slander someone. Next up, David tells us that our tongues shouldn't be used to do evil. And does no evil to his neighbor is what he says exactly. It means our tongue shouldn't be used to hurt someone. It shouldn't be hurt, used to hurt our friends. It shouldn't be used to hurt those people we may not get along with. And it may seem a little vague just for him to say it does no evil to someone. But we can flip a few pages and see what I think he means by this. Turn with me to Psalm 52. Psalm 52. At the beginning of Psalm 52, we get an understanding, in my eye, of what David means. Of what he means by when he says, does no evil to his neighbor. Starting in verse 1, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. In this psalm, we can see that an evil tongue loves to lie. It loves, it loves to deceive someone. And so if we're doing evil to our neighbor, if we're speaking evil to our neighbor, then we may be lying to our neighbor. We may be trying to deceive our neighbor for some reason that, that we want something that he has, or we want to have an opportunity that he has a better chance of getting. And so we use our tongue to deceive him or her. My lying, if I, if I came to you and, and lied to you about the, what the scriptures said, then my lying can lead you down a path of sin. I can lead you away from the goal that we're all trying to get to. Our lying can destroy a, lives and that, a life. And that's what we see in, at the beginning of Psalm 52 when he says, oh, destruct, or in verse 2, your tongue plots destruction. An evil tongue is there for the destruction of someone else. In verse 4, we see that an evil tongue devours someone else. Have you ever had a time where you've had a conversation with someone and it hasn't maybe gone so well, and you walk away and all you can think of is the mean things they said to you? The things that they said, oh, you're, you're terrible at that, that. You're not a very good people person. You can't do that. You're just not that kind of person. And those words just kind of sit with you for the rest of the day. You just, you take that and you dwell on it and it just sits there and it consumes your thoughts because... Wow, they really think that about me? Wow, how, how did I come off like that? What have I done to come off like that? 
Our words can devour someone in the sense that they can take up their thoughts. They can stop them and and focus them about everything we have said wrong or rudely about someone else. And if we're focused more on what what we don't like about someone and we use that to hurt them, then we're not going to be one of God's unmovable people. And we haven't disciplined our tongue. Turn back with me to Psalm 15. Psalm 15, in this this last phrase of this this coupling, David said, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Our tongues shouldn't be used to tear someone down. A reproach is just that, to to tear someone down, to, to sit there and yell at them and tell them everything they're doing wrong and bring them down to what we think they should be. How easy is it for us to do something like that? I know often when I get angry or upset, my first reaction is to start picking at someone. Say, well, yeah, well, you're not very nice. You don't smell very good. And start, start tearing them down little by little because I'm upset, because I'm hurt. When we're upset, we tend to lash out at people. And if we're lashing out at people and not controlling our tongues and tearing them down, well, then we're not, one, we're not living up to the standard God wants us to live up to. And we're not being that people that we should be. And this isn't to say that we can never tell someone when they're doing wrong. We, can, we, we can't use our tongues to, to just tear down people. In the New Testament, we have examples of Paul, like in 1 Corinthians 4, using his words to admonish the church. But in his own words, he says, I'm not here to shame you. I just want to admonish you, to teach you how to be better. We can use our words in a way that builds people up while not breaking them down to to a rubble. We can use our words to fix something without being mean. And if we want to be the unmovable people of God, we have to learn to discipline our tongues instead of letting them control our body and control who we are. In verse 4 of Psalm 15, we read, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord? And we're going to stop there. In this verse, it kind of splits itself awkwardly. At the beginning of the verse, it's talking about one idea. And at the end of the verse, it goes into a different idea. But what I see from here is that the unmovable people of God honor the righteous. I think this is an important idea because if I am striving to be part of the unmovable people, then I'm going to be careful who I honor. Because when I honor someone, I try to become like that person. I become who I want to honor. What happens when you show respect to someone? When you, when you look up to someone? Well, you want to emulate them. You, you see something that they've done that is really good. And you're like, I want to be like that. I want to do what that person has just done. And so you start to think about, well, how can I go about being that way? How can I go about changing it so I can be more like them? In college, I was very amazed at some of my professors. They could get into a room, and it could be a subject that I was either really enthusiastic about or was a subject that I really couldn't care less about. But I was amazed that the professors who would get in there captivate the audience and tell their, their subject in a way that always seemed new always seemed exciting and just made me want to be able to teach like that. I want to be able to teach so that that people are always excited to hear the subject that I am teaching. 
And I tried to learn from them. I, I would sit there and analyze their movements, the way they spoke, because that's what I wanted to be like. I respected that. I honored that. And that's what David's talking about right here. We should be giving our honor to what is holy and righteous and not to what is vile and sinful. Because when we honor someone, it gives credibility to what they're doing. It says, you know, I, I enjoy what you're doing. Keep doing that. So what happens when we honor someone who is maybe living a life of adultery? When we, ah, that's, that's nothing. It's okay. It's, it is what it is. When we start to honor what is evil or someone who is deceitful, then we start to kind of give them the idea that, you know, it, it's okay what I'm doing. I can keep doing this because Zach thinks I'm okay. He's, he's still hanging out with me. He's still talking to me. He's still treating me like he would any other. I, I'm fine. David is adamant that we despise what is evil. And this whole psalm is the idea of, of what keeps us from being part of God's people and the idea of the evil things that keep us from God's people. And if we view evil as despicable, then it won't hold us back from being a part of God. This isn't saying we can't appreciate different aspects of people's lives. This isn't saying I can't appreciate something good that someone has done. But we can't let that appreciation of one good thing cloud our judgment of maybe 99 bad things. We have to despise what is evil. And on the contrary, if we honor what is righteous, those who fear the Lord, those who live a holy life, then we try to emulate those who are righteous. We want to be like those righteous people. Because if I am constantly looking at someone I respect that is living a life that is fearful of God and obeying the commandments, well, then I want to find ways that I can emulate that same lifestyle. I want to find ways where I can try to have as much faith as that one person or try to do as much good works as that one person. And I start to elevate my life to be more of what God expects instead of just staying where I was. We have to honor the righteous if we want to be the people who are unmovable. We aren't able to walk physically with Christ or the apostles. We can't sit there and, and look at their actions one-on-one. -on -one. But we do have examples around us of people who are living faithfully, of people who are living strong lives in the faith. And we can look at that and say, I want to be more like them. I want to be more like them in my race for God. That may mean I, I look and I look introspectively at myself, like we mentioned before, and I say, they're talking to people, they're, they're encouraging people. I should be doing that too. They're helping out with that move. I should be there too. If I'm honoring the righteous, then I'm growing myself in my own spiritual race. And if we strive to be the unmovable people of God, then we're going to honor the righteous and despise evil. Finally, in the latter part of verse 4 and verse 5, we're given the last coupling that David goes over. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who does not put his money out at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. The unmovable people of God don't allow money to rule their lives. 
Money has a strange effect on all of us. As a kid, I always wanted to do chores for money. And if there wasn't any allowance in it, well, I would kind of run away from my parents because I don't want to do chores. I don't want to take out the trash. But then when they started saying, yeah, hey, if you'll mow the lawn, we'll give, you, we'll give you 20 bucks for mowing the lawn. Well, I'd be out there mowing the lawn. I didn't care how hot it was. I didn't care how tired I was. That 20 bucks spoke a lot to me. Money affects where I put it, what I use it for, and how my life is affected by it. It affects my decisions. It affects where I go, what I, what I do. And what David is saying is very simple. Don't allow money to rule your life. In the latter part of verse 4, David talks about swearing and keeping your word, even to your own hurt. Do we ever make a promise to someone? And as we fulfill the promise, maybe it's a, a project that we're doing, we realize that it's taken a lot more from us than we expected. Maybe more time, more money. It's, it's made us a lot more tired than we are expecting to be. It's, I've got all these bumps and bruises because I've been building a house or, or a, a shed for someone. And I continue to realize that as I continue this project, I'm only going to get more tired. I'm only going to spend more money. I'm only going to do more that maybe damages me a little more than I expected. David gives us a simple answer to what happens when we feel this way. We have to keep our word, even if it costs us, even if it makes us more tired, even if it makes us a little less wealthy. And there's a very specific promise like this that I think a lot of us agree to, and that's the promise of marriage. In our vows, I know in mine I said, for better or for worse, for sick or for poorer. I made a promise that no matter the outcome of the life, no matter the, the sickness or the health that my wife has, I was going to stay married. That's my promise. I can't just because maybe Bailey gets sick for a couple weeks. I can't turn around and go to her father and say, hey, take her back. I don't want her. She's sick. She's causing me a lot of money. I, I just can't do this. I can't do that. I made a promise. And I'm going to keep that promise, even if there is sickness, even if our life maybe isn't what we expected at first. Because just because something is harder than I expected when I promised it, doesn't mean I renege on my word. It means I keep it. In verse 5, we come to another idea about money. David says, don't put money out at interest and don't take bribe for justice. And these ideas are, are, are somewhat different, somewhat similar. The idea of interest is not a problem with legitimate business. He's not saying you can't have interest on a business transaction that you're using. We know from Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents that interest is seen as positive. And so the problem with interest then, well, what is it? Interest is also known as usury in this passage. And the problem with that is it shames the one you're doing it to. It shames the person who cannot pay back what is owed. And if someone owes me an amount of money, if, if they can't pay it back on time, and I start saying, well, because you can't pay that back, I'm going to add five more dollars to every, every day you can't pay that back. And it shames them continually because they're continually working to pay off the debt. And they continually can't do it. The problem with interest and usury is the idea of shaming someone because they don't have the money to pay you back. We shouldn't hold the fact that we have wealth 
over those who have none. We shouldn't hold the fact that we have money, and if you owe me some, I'm going to continue to hold your money over you and your lack of it. And if we do so, then we won't be standing as one of God's unmovable people. Finally, in verse 5, we, we talk about using bribery to help you make a decision. Specifically, he says, he who does not take a bribe against the innocent. Money shouldn't lead us to pervert justice. It shouldn't lead us to pervert any decision in our life. It shouldn't lead us to break our word. It shouldn't lead us to oppress and shame others. And it shouldn't lead us to decide our, our choices in life. Because, well, so-and-so is going to give me more money if I, if I choose his project over that project. He's going to slide me a couple, couple dollars under the table. When we start to allow money to affect our decisions about other people and of other people, then we're not living as David wants us to. If money does control our life, then we cannot serve God. And we understand in Matthew chapter 6, 24, that one cannot serve money and God. We have to choose one or the other. And if we're allowing money to control our lives, then we're not allowing God to lead us the way he wants us to, to go. David's psalm tells us that only certain people will be with God. It's, it's very clear in verse 1 and verse 5. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? He who does these things and shall, not be moved, or shall never be moved. If we want to live with God, if we want to be with God forever and never be moved, then we should listen to what David has to say. We should live to the standard that God wants us to. We should be disciplining our tongues the way he wants us to. We should be, we should be honoring the righteous and despising what is evil. And we should not allow money to rule over us. And if we do all of these things, then we can understand from what David says, we will be that unmovable people. I appreciate your attention. We'll be dismissed for classes at this time.